Assalamu alaikum. My name is Khurram Shamim and this is the Muslims in Your Backyard podcast where I talk about issues related to Muslims in the 21st century and try to learn from the past as well as the present that is happening within the Muslim world. Thank you guys for joining me for another episode today. I hope you guys have been doing well since the last podcast episode. I know myself, I've been busy mainly through work. As I've mentioned before, I do work full time. And so obviously that takes up a lot of time in my life, as, as I'm sure if, as it does for many of you who work full time as well. Um, and also just sort of, you know, other things uh, during the summer, uh, a few, you know, vacations here and there. Uh, and just sort of spending time with family and friends uh, as, you know, a pretty normal summer uh, as it is. Or, well, at least uh, a pretty normal summer now, obviously, in the past two years because of COVID. Uh, it wasn't so normal for a lot of us. But, inshallah, you know, we're able to keep continuing to get back to the quote-unquote normal that existed for us before uh, COVID hit and sort of messed up everything. Regardless, I'm really excited to be back and making an episode. I'm really excited for you guys to be back and listening to an episode. Uh, again, I know it's been uh, about maybe a month or two since uh, my last episode. Um, and again, it's just been because I've been busy. But, you know, I'm glad to get back into it. Um, you know, I'm hoping to release uh, this episode and then uh, maybe one more episode uh, for the rest of, uh, you know, for the end of, I guess, till the year. Um, and, and again, it's mainly because, like I mentioned in, in the previous episode, that I wanted to focus on something more than just doing episodes every other week. And that's primarily because my schedule is kind of busy, but also because doing an episode every other week also feels somewhat rushed at times. It feels like I have to sort of, you know, push out an episode regardless of whether or not I feel you know, it's ready or whether or not I feel that I could do more in that episode as well. And so I hope to sort of be able to have a bit more flexibility in that sense and to be able to sort of, you know, create better episodes by focusing more on certain things or going more into research and just sort of giving a better podcast experience, of course, for you guys as well. Uh, but again, regardless, you know, I hope to also, uh, you know, just make this podcast more professional as well. Um, but like I've mentioned many times before, it's just me who's making this podcast, right? And and I have no prior podcasting experience. So really, I am learning as I uh, kind of go along as well. But anyways, you know, that that's all, you know, uh, just sort of minor administrative stuff. And, and I don't want to bore you guys uh, with that too much. So I figured that, you know, with that being said, I wanted to first move into, you know, talking about what we're going to do or what I'm going to discuss for today's episode. Uh, but again, before we get into that, I always like to mention this. Don't forget to like and to subscribe to this podcast. It really does help me in producing more podcast episodes um, and allowing me to continue focusing on the issues and the history and the connection of 21st century Muslims to the past and to the issues of what is happening today. If you guys could just go to the bottom of your podcast page or, you know, whatever podcast subscriber you uh, listen to from, you know, subscribe to the podcast so that you can get the newest updates for the podcast and whenever I release an episode, uh, as well as liking the podcast allows me to get more reviews and sort of a better, uh, you know, I guess uh, of a better understanding of what people think of the podcast as well. And it also allows other people to interact with the podcast due to the good reviews. So please don't forget to do that just before uh, you begin listening today. And so without further ado, I wanted to focus on today's episode, which is a past and present Muslims episode. And, and in previous episodes, I called these the past and present heroes. Uh, I'm going to be changing the name to past and present Muslims simply because I feel like the word hero sort of gives off the wrong impression. You know, many of these people were great Muslims and they were great people as well. Um, but hero sort of makes it sound like you have to, you know, maybe worship or look up to them, when really that's not the kind of persona that I think many of the people that I've covered uh, in, you know, this podcast would, or at least the people who I intend to also cover in the future, would sort of fit under. You know, these people aren't necessarily heroes, uh, but they are good people to look up to, or they've accomplished many great things. And so I just feel like referring to it as past and present Muslims 
is a better way of articulating that. And as I'm sure as some of you have figured out, as long as you read the episode title, I'm sure most of you figured out, for today's episode, I will be focusing on the famous American civil rights activist and famous African-American Muslim, Malcolm X. Now, Malcolm X was a, well, I guess to put it lightly, he was a controversial figure. There are many people who love him, and there are just as many people who hated him. And that is probably one of the reasons why he's so iconic in today's world, specifically in the African-American and American communities. He is so well-known simply because of the fact that he really did live a very dubious life. Uh, As I'll go into this further, he actually had a very tough childhood. He went to prison at the age of 20. He eventually joined the Nation of Islam, which was a a not-Muslim, I guess, thing. I'll get into it further later in the episode. Let's just call them that for now. And then he would eventually find Sunni Islam, and then he would eventually do Hajj, and he would become a very big advocate for Islam as well, while at the same time having many relations and interactions with many iconic people uh, in the world at that time, including many African leaders. He once met the king of Saudi Arabia at the time, King Faisal. Uh, he met multiple you know, famous Muslim leaders of the day. He also met He also met other uh, famous African-American Muslims like Muhammad Ali and so on and so forth. And at the end of the day, you know, I could go on about many of the things that he did in his life. But of course, as always, I can't go through everything. So I will not be going through every single detail of his life. I'll just be going over and highlighting the main things that I found were the most important and the most interesting about his life as well. And the reason is, is because... Um, I'm not going to try to go into too much about his, you know, some of his philosophical or ethical ideas, uh, because again, that would take a lot more of a breaking down. And also it would lead me to also talking more about the civil rights movement, which isn't what the focus of this episode is supposed to be about. What I want to do is introduce, understand, and appreciate who Malcolm X was. And to do so, I will break this episode down into multiple parts. The first part, I'll focus on his early life and how he sort of attributes the name Malcolm X. Then I'm going to focus on the Nation of Islam and his connection to the Nation of Islam and what they meant to him during his life. And then I'll go from the Nation of Islam to his journey to Sunni Islam and what led him to convert to Sunni Islam and adopt himself to be a fully-fledged Muslim. And then I'll go into at the last part I will just go into a bit of detail into his relationship with Muhammad Ali because the two of them had a very intertwined and important relationship that would define each other's lives very heavily. So then, to begin, Malcolm X was born as Malcolm Little to Earl and Louise Little in Omaha, Nebraska on the day of May 19, 1925. His father was a Baptist minister and a follower of the ideologies of black nationalism, which was an idea that saw forth of producing a black state, a black-only state within America. His mother also was a follower of black nationalism or black nationalistic ideas. And the reason that many of these sort of ideas of black nationalism, although they were very complex, to very simplify them would be to say that black nationalism was essentially the idea that black people and African Americans within America should have their own state or their own country aside from white Americans, essentially allowing the segregation of whites and blacks to occur so that both ple- both people could live within their own communities and not have to deal with each other because they saw that they couldn't interact with each other in a peaceful manner. Aside from that, Malcolm X grew up in an era where racial segregation and prejudice towards African Americans was common and thoroughly accepted in many parts of America, and it would be a major factor in his life as he experienced it throughout his childhood. Much of his life was basically him 
being racially segregated and experiencing prejudice towards the fact that he was African-American. Now, Malcolm was sentenced to jail in 1946 at the age of 21 over grand larceny, breaking and entering, and firearms possession. At the time, he was actually part of a gang of thieves uh, with a black friend of his named Jarvis. Now, in this gang, there was also three white women with him and Jarvis as well. So it was him, Jarvis, and three white women, five people in total. However, when they were arrested in 1946, only him and his friend Jarvis were sentenced. In fact, the court found that the three white women uh, were not, I guess, as guilty and had their sentences suspended, which essentially means they were free to go. So the two black kids were sentenced and the three white people or the three white women were basically allowed to go free, even though the three white women were just as involved or allegedly involved in the, uh, in the criminal acts that they all committed. Only Malcolm, only Malcolm and his friend Jarvis were actually sentenced to jail. Malcolm would remain in jail till 1952 and would be released at the age of 26. It is here uh, during this time while in jail that he actually meets the, a member and the future leader uh, of the Nation of Islam, the man known as Elijah Muhammad. Uh, and his siblings, Malcolm's, uh, you know, his brothers and sisters, were also part of the Nation of Islam. And this is where he sort of joins the Nation of Islam and becomes more and more intertwined with their ideologies and beliefs. Uh, and so Elijah Muhammad would be a very big uh, you know, part of his life because he would be a person who led him to the Nation of Islam, but also would be a person who would eventually, as he would become the leader of the Nation of Islam, would become an influential person in general within America. Now during this time, this is where Malcolm also adopts the last name X. And so the reason behind this, and he was not the only one who did this, many African Americans during this time, and I think some of them still do now, where they will adopt the last name X because it is a representation of them going against the quote-unquote slave name that they were given by white slavers, and they saw this as an act of rebellion against those people. And what I mean by this is because when many African slaves were brought over to America, and many, you know, slaves in general within Africa, um, they were forced to take basically European names. So stuff like Malcolm X or whatnot, or, you know, John Smith, these are European names based on European cultures. And so many of them saw these names as sort of being a continuation of their slavery. And so to counter that, they would take names like Malcolm X. Now, before we move on any further, I want to go into a bit more detail about the Nation of Islam. And I, I believe I have mentioned them before. I believe I mentioned them a bit during my episode on Muhammad Ali. Uh, but regardless, I, I do want to go over them a bit more because I do think that they're still an important thing to talk about or at least to understand at a basic level. I don't think we need to go into any more detail or depth about them, but I do think it's important for us to understand what their origins are, because, well, largely, I mean, they use the name of Islam, right? They are called the Nation of Islam. And to really put it bluntly, um, and I guess bluntly is the only way to put this, uh, but the Nation of Islam is not in any sort of way an orthodox Muslim affiliation, and it has no roots in Sunni or Shia Islam, and in fact, it is not that far-fetched to say that the Nation of Islam has actually very little to do with Islam in general. It, it, it honestly has very little to do. And uh, as I go into more detail about them, you'll start to realize as well why they have very little to do with the Nation of Islam. And as I'm sure many Muslims would say, that they don't even follow basic Muslim values. So to go into detail about them, I'm just going to go over some of their core beliefs, uh, and again, to be clear, it has nothing to do with Islam, and some of you may find some parts of this offensive, but nonetheless, this is what their core beliefs are. And so it goes as the following, and I quote, Over 6,000 years ago, 
The black race lived in a paradise on earth that was destroyed by the evil wizard Yakub, who created the white devil, quote-unquote, through a scientific process called grafting. The Nation of Islam and their disciples preached of a coming apocalyptic overthrow of white domination, insisting that the dominion of evil was to end with God's appearance on earth in the person of Farth, who was the founder of the Nation of Islam. Following this, the Nation of Islam predicts an epic struggle in which the Nation of Islam will play a key role in preparing and educating the original people who ruled the earth in peace and prosperity until Yaqub's blue-eyed devils came along to destroy things. The Nation of Islam teaches that intermarriage or race mixing should be prevented. End quote. So, yeah, I mean, that's basically the origin of their beliefs, and it is legitimately what they believe. Um, I don't know how else to say this, but that has absolutely nothing to do with Islam, and it's very much contradictory to what Islam stands for. And a few simple reasons, just in case some people who are non-Muslim or whatnot listen to this uh, and don't know, the first and most, I guess, important thing that probably struck you out as much as it struck me out, but they, the, the evil wizard that they name here is Yaqub or Yaqub or something like that. So it's obviously very similar to the name that we give to the actual prophet, Yaqub salam, who was not an evil wizard. He was a prophet and a great one at that. And yet the, the use of his name, I mean, that is, that, that, that is contradictory to everything that Islam would say. Of course, we would never do something like this or even ascribe to these kind of beliefs. And I, have, I, I really could not find a reason why the evil wizard is named that. It, it really does seem to me like the, this is just them taking a name that they found and then just attributing it to some random story. And it's a shame because, again, Yaqub is not that kind of a man. As we all know, uh, his story is one that is, you know, one of the more, I guess, important stories, although I guess all the prophets' stories are very important. But he, his story is one of the ones that is, of course, uh, talked about a lot, especially in relation to, of course, his son, uh, Yusuf as well. And then furthermore, they also contradict and then, I guess, change the story of Adam salam and the creation of the world because they imply that, uh, first off, that the paradise was already on earth and that, you know, that the only people on earth were essentially black people, which, I mean, for as, as Muslims, I, I don't know if we really believe in that um, or even what, what we attribute to what the race or the color of Adam and the original humans were, or do we attribute the fact that Earth was the paradise when we know that that's not what the paradise is? Earth is not the paradise. Jannah uh, is the paradise. So why would Earth be the paradise? That makes no sense to us. And then the last but not least, and this is one that is, you know, obviously uh, unacceptable on not just a religious, but also I think on just a human level, but labeling white people as being blue-eyed devils and as an evil against all of humanity is um, is unacceptable, right? And I think also for Muslims, it contradicts the fact that there are white Muslims. There are many white Muslims and many, you know, pale-skinned Muslims as well. You know, it's it's a sad thing to say that this is something that's attributed with the name of Islam when it has nothing to do with it. And, and of course, I know us as you know, Muslims who follow Sunni Islam or Shia Islam, whatever, you know, we, we don't attribute this sort of hate towards uh, the way that, you know, the nation of Islam does. But of course, the problem and the reason why I wanted to bring up this and sort of go into a bit of detail as to what their beliefs are is because of the fact that they have the name, the nation of Islam. And some people do every now and then incorrectly attribute the values and ideas of the nation of Islam to the rest of Islam. And it is an injustice for that to happen. And so if you are a non-Muslim that's listening to this, uh, or you you know do believe in this in any sort of way, 
the ideas and the virtues of the nation of Islam have nothing to do with Islam. As actually, we will go into further detail when I go into more detail about Malcolm X's life, which is a good, uh, I guess, transition, because now we should go back to discussing about Malcolm X's life. So Malcolm X joins the nation of Islam in 1952, and he, you know, very quickly becomes one of their more prominent members. And he is also, of course, released from jail. And so because of that and his freedom from being released from jail, he is able to very much become a huge member of the nation of Islam. When he joins the nation of Islam, and this is a testament to Malcolm X's uh, ability to not only persuade people, but also his ability to articulate his ideas and thoughts. When he joins the nation of Islam, they had a you know national membership within the United States of about only 400 people. But after his, uh, you know, joining of the group, they would soon triple in growth. And by 1954, uh, he is one of the most senior members of the Nation of Islam and is also one of Elijah Muhammad's most trusted members. It is also in the Nation of Islam where he meets his, uh, his wife, uh, Betty Sanders, in 1956 and would eventually marry her in 1958. During this time, she would also change her name from Betty Sanders to Betty X because she also joins the nation of Islam. And through his, his ability to articulate his ideas and thoughts, Malcolm X would, of course, also become a pivotal and very important member of the civil rights movement. However, he did not align with people like Martin Luther King Jr., for example. In fact, he very much contradicted many of the ideas or values that Martin Luther King Jr. would put out and many of the mainstream civil rights activists uh, introduced as well. In fact, it's, it's almost interesting to, to see how, you know, anti, I, I guess, the, the mainstream civil rights movement he, he was because he very much saw that that was not the way for black people to gain the, the rights and the liberties that he felt that they deserved. Now, again, I'm not going to get too much into this, but it's important to understand that he wasn't well-liked in all parts of the civil rights movement. Some people really did like him, and they really thought that what he said was the truth in terms of the fact that, you know, black people in America did not deserve to just get, you know, segregation removed, but that they deserved more, and that white people weren't just going to accept them just because segregation was removed, and that he he very much he very much used to always say, and, and he emphasized this in many of his speeches as well, that the white people, you know, were not just going to accept black people just because you know there was no more segregation. That the white people themselves had to look internally and accept black people within the country. But again. That's a story for another day, and I don't want to get too, too much into, uh, you know, the civil rights movement and what role he played. But to just sum it up as, I guess, as succinct as possible, he very much uh, played a very big role, albeit not always on, you know, everyone's side. As I said, he was a controversial figure, so he did uh, make a lot of controversy with many of the things that he did. Eventually, though, these controversies would come full circle because eventually these controversies were not just with things outside of the nation of Islam, but it would come into the things that he did within the nation of Islam as well. And eventually Malcolm's relations with the nation of Islam fell apart in due to two main issues. The first were ideological differences, and then the second were ethical differences between him and Elijah Muhammad. Ideologically, Malcolm X was very, very outspoken, and it was his kind of thing to be outspoken. He was well known for being outspoken. However, there were many things that Elijah Muhammad, uh, again, the leader of the Nation of Islam at this time, he did not want Malcolm X to be talking about for a variety of reasons, but Primarily, it's because Elijah Muhammad saw himself as the leader, and he said that I should be the one 
making any statements for the group. And he saw Malcolm X as someone who was sort of subverting that power by making statements or what people perceived as statements on behalf of the Nation of Islam rather than Elijah Muhammad being the one that was making those statements. And one of the most famous statements that Malcolm X made was in reference to John F. Kennedy's assassination. As I'm sure all of you know, the American president, John F. Kennedy, was assassinated in, I believe it was Dallas, Texas, although it could just, I don't remember where it was in Texas, but I believe, uh, although don't quote me on that, I believe it was Dallas, Texas. Anyways, during this assassination, it was obviously a very uh, monumental time in American politics. Uh, I believe he was one of a handful of American presidents to be assassinated. And essentially, it was a very big topic that many people were discussing in terms of, you know, who assassinated him, you know, what was the reasoning behind it. There's all kinds of, you know, theories and conspiracy theories as well, um, which are not worth getting into. But nonetheless, you know, were things that people were talking about. And during this time, Malcolm X made one of his most controversial comments where he said that the assassination of John F. Kennedy was the chickens coming home to roost for America. And essentially saying that it was sort of a full circle movement, that America's president, John F. Kennedy, was assassinated largely due to America's own decisions in terms of foreign policy and domestic policy, etc., etc. Again, I'm not going to go too, too much into that, but it was a very controversial comment uh, on his part. And, and I will also point out that I, I am not quoting him, uh, you know, fully. I, I was sort of just sort of quoting him um, in, in a general way. Uh, but essentially, his main point was that. Now, when Elijah Muhammad found out these issues, it led to a big issue between them. Because again, it was Malcolm X being outspoken in a way that Elijah Muhammad did not like. Aside from the ideological problems, the ethical problems also became a bigger problem. And this was primarily because, and I guess ethical ethical problems is one way to put this, but Malcolm X eventually learned through a process uh, by, you know, by just sort of hearing some rumors originally, but then eventually he was uh, able to confirm for the most part, but many, you know, people told him and, and he was able to sort of find this out that Elijah Muhammad, who was supposed to be this religious uh, figure for the nation of Islam and this quote-unquote, again, quote-unquote, holy figure for the nation of Islam, this great man who led them, it was eventually found out by Malcolm X that Elijah Muhammad had numerous, numerous affairs and uh, relations with many of his secretaries and that he had in fact fathered multiple children with many of them. One of them who was actually suing him for paternity support uh, for the child. Now, when Malcolm X, you know, learned of this, he immediately said that the rest of the nation of Islam should know this. They should know uh, that, you know, their leader is not this great man that he says that he is, and that, in fact, he's done a very, very bad thing in not only lying to people about his holiness, but also to the fact that he was essentially shunning these children that were his. Now, this led to a big issue because Malcolm was essentially shunned from the nation of Islam and he was essentially forced to not talk about it. He wasn't allowed to discuss it and he was very much threatened by many of the members of the nation of Islam because they did not want to see this news come out to light. And it led to essentially Malcolm X becoming from one of the most iconic, well-known members of the nation of Islam to eventually falling out. And eventually, by, the, by March 1964, Malcolm X would announce that he was leaving the Nation of Islam and that he had instead formed what was called the Organization of Afro-American Unity, whose platform was to essentially help African people and African communities from across the world where they were being oppressed. And the reason why they would focus on that was because even during this time, 
1964, some European countries still had colonies in Africa or still played a role in controlling many of these African states. And so it was there, uh, the objective of the organization of Afro-American unity to push for uh, the, uh, you know, the freedom for many of these African-American colonies. Now, what Malcolm didn't know at this time was him leaving the Nation of Islam would be arguably one of the most important and impactful decisions of his life. And it would arguably be one of the things that not only made him an iconic person in African-American history, but also something that made him very iconic in Islamic and Muslim history as well. Now, before I get into you know, the rest of his life uh, and, you know, his journey to Islam and, you know, his eventual death, I do want to get into just sort of reviewing what we've talked about so far about his life. Because, again, I did go through a lot of details here and I did skip over some things as well, again, because I can't focus on every little detail, but I do think it's important to look back at who Malcolm X is to this point. Because by this time... Uh, in 1964, Malcolm X is essentially a black nationalist, right? He believes in not just black supremacy, but he believes that black people should be separate from the rest of white America, that they shouldn't intertwine, that they shouldn't interrelate. He's very much against this idea of possibly trusting white people, although he didn't necessarily view that all white people were enemies at this time. At the same time, you know, he didn't necessarily trust them either. It's a bit complicated where he may have stood, but again, as a member of the Nation of Islam, he definitely did not trust all white people, nor was he trying to actively be friends with them either. And this is where I think it's important to understand that these are sort of prejudices that are intertwined into his ideas of who he is and what the world is as well. And as an American, he only has lived in America. Now, he has traveled to other parts of the world at this point, uh, but he had mainly, you know, been in America and parts of Africa and other parts of, you know, the Middle East, maybe, I think, at this point. But for the most part, you know, he lived sort of confided in America, and his whole life was dealt with segregation racism, uh, you know, prejudice, and unequal treatment within America. I mean, one of the main things in America was segregation, which would essentially mean that there were certain things that white people were allowed to do, but black people were not allowed to do, or people of color were not allowed to do. And for example, there's this uh, one iconic, uh, you know, I, th I think it was a, a well-known sort of thing to happen where if you were in a park, for example, there would be two fountains one for white people and one for black people. And if the black person was caught drinking from a white person's fountain, you know, they would be essentially, you know, often uh, attacked for doing so because it was seen as them, quote unquote, corrupting the fountain for white people because it was not for black people and that the black people should only drink from the fountain that was for black people. So we really need to take this into consideration as to who Malcolm is so far. This is the world that Malcolm X has grown up in. He doesn't know any other world. There is no other world for him to join. Everywhere in America that he goes, although not every place in America may have been racist as some other parts, he was not going to be fully accepted for the fact that he was black, that he was African, and that he was not a white American. And so going into this, is really important of an understanding as to what Malcolm X has experienced throughout his life. Now I want to move on to really the journey to Islam. And this is again where his intersection with Muslim history really amplifies to a hundred. And it's important to note that Malcolm X actually did have many friends who were members of Sunni Islam. In fact, as a member of the Nation of Islam, he had interacted with other people who, of course, also were the followers of Islam, of course, being the actual Sunni Shia Muslims who actually followed what Islam was about and what Islam said was the right path as well. 
And so as Malcolm X pushes further and further away from the nation of Islam and he rejects what they stood for and he sort of is in this weird place in his life. He doesn't have the answers that he's looking for because again, you know, he follows the nation of Islam when he immediately leaves jail. And so it's an impactful moment for him. As a young man, he leaves jail. He is, you know, just went through five years of jail. He's looking for hope and, you know, for a pathway to life. And the nation of Islam is what gives him that. The nation of Islam gives him meaning. It gives him an understanding of the world, where his place is in the world. But now that he's left that, he doesn't really have that thing. He doesn't have that understanding. What is the source for what his life is? What is the source, the point? What is he, what is he urging? What is he fighting for? He needs to understand this. And so as Malcolm then pushes further away from the nation of Islam and he begins to look for those answers and his understanding of the world, it's through this process and some guidance from Sunni Muslims that he himself knew that Malcolm X accepts and begins to follow Islam as his religion. And because of the fact that he is a new Muslim and to sort of solidify his acceptance of this religion, he decides to do, you know, he decides to go on Hajj by himself. And this is a pretty big commitment if you think about it, right? Because not many people would recommend this, that, uh, or at least I don't think many people would recommend this. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. But I don't believe many people would recommend new followers to immediately go on Hajj. Although, of course, it is good because every Muslim must go on Hajj. At the same time, it's not something that people would immediately recommend. And yet, it is the decision that he makes. And it's an important one as well because it sort, of, it's, it sort of shows just how committed he may have been to the religion immediately and how important it may have been to his life that he was comfortable going on Hajj immediately, right after converting. Or, or, well, okay, not right after converting, but you know what I mean. He's a new follower of Islam and he wants to immediately learn about what this religion is. So he decides to go to the very heart of Islam, which is, of course, Mecca and Medina. Now, there were a few problems with this, although I should say a few. By that, I mean a few major problems with this. The first thing and the most important thing was that he actually couldn't speak Arabic. So that was problematic because at this time, of course, there may not have been as much English translators or just overall people who could speak English fluently everywhere you might go in the Middle East. Not that people couldn't speak English, but nonetheless, it wasn't necessarily as common and it may have been difficult as well. And so not being able to speak Arabic became a bit of a problem for him. Uh, and then the second thing was, of course, that his family were all Christian and followers of the nation of Islam. And so because they were not Muslim and they were not recognized as being Muslim, it became problematic for him to gain entrance to Mecca and Medina. Because, of course, you have to prove the fact that you are Muslim, as we all know, to enter Mecca and Medina, because you have to be Muslim to enter the holy cities. Uh, and so because of that, he has to sort of go through a process of proving that he is Muslim, which becomes, again, incredibly difficult because he can't speak Arabic. Uh, so he's sort of stuck right now. He's sort of stuck a bit because he can't speak Arabic. He can't really communicate with anyone. He doesn't really know what to do. Eventually, though, he is able to get one of his friends, who is a Muslim, to get a translator to help him through the process with the Saudi authorities so that they would fully understand that Malcolm X was indeed uh, a Muslim, and so that, you know, they, uh, they accepted the fact uh, that he was a, a Muslim, and eventually he was allowed to continue with his Hajj. Um, he would eventually go through uh, with the Hajj as well, and he would actually become also a, 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 a honorary guest of King Faisal, who was the Saudi king at the time. Now, I have discussed his, uh, his journey to Mecca before. I did it in a previous episode in season one where I believe, I think it was season one. Uh, yeah, I think it was season one where I discussed what the meaning of Hajj was or I discussed what we can understand from Hajj. Uh, and really, it sort of focused on a few stories that related to the importance of Hajj within the Islamic community. So I, I, I have gone into 
you know, some detail, but I want to go into further detail as well, because there's a lot of important things, again, that is is a part of Malcolm's journey while he goes to Mecca uh, and he goes on Hajj as well. Now, it's important to understand that the nation of Islam had so few fundamentals of Islam that the members didn't even practice the five daily prayers. So when Malcolm actually left the nation of Islam and he joins Sunni Islam, he realizes at the same time how little the nation of Islam actually has to do with Islam itself. And when he starts to learn about the five daily prayers as well, he is blown away because, again, his whole time in the nation of Islam, they never did this. They never did these sort of things. They never, you know, focused on, uh, you know, the five daily prayers or the, you know, the, the importance of prayer, which is something that's heavily emphasized, of course, in the rest of Islam. Now, I want to go through and read a few of Malcolm's own accounts of his journey, uh, because I think they are the best and truly the only way to really understand what he was thinking and what he was feeling as well. And so I'll go through three main themes. The first is rediscovering brotherhood. The second is his time in Mecca. And the third is what he thought that Islam meant for America. So first, rediscovering brotherhood. To put some context into this quote, uh, Malcolm is traveling to Mecca and Medina through Frankfurt, which is in Germany. And then he's going, I believe he goes to Cairo and then he goes to Saudi Arabia. I think that was just sort of the route that was taken at that time. Um, and also because it was just sort of probably available for him. But essentially, while in Frankfurt, he quotes this. He says, uh, or at least, sorry, he wrote, and I quote, Throngs of people, obviously Muslims from everywhere, bound for the pilgrimage. He'd begun to notice at the airport terminal before boarding the plane for Cairo in Frankfurt. He says, and I quote, they were hugging and embracing. They were of all complexions. The whole atmosphere was of warmth and friendliness. The feeling hit me that there really wasn't any color problem here. The effect was as though I had just stepped out of a prison. End quote. Now, I, I did say, remember earlier that his whole life had been situated in America. And that's why the one sentence here where he mentions the feeling hit me that there really wasn't any color problem here is something so very important. Because for him, that must have been a revelation. His whole life, he lived in segregation. His whole life, he lived being told that that's how the world was. And then he realized that it wasn't. And that's what that quote represents right there. He's rediscovering of the brotherhood. He understands the connection between the different races and peoples of the earth. He doesn't see it so much as the segregation and the division of people. And it would have a huge impact on his life and his political beliefs as well. But regardless, him looking at that sort of brotherhood, him understanding as well the sort of brotherhood and, uh, you know, and community that is within Islam, especially amongst those who are going on Hajj because of just how important of a journey that the Hajj really is. It was something of probably great importance to him at the time and something mind-boggling as well, uh, largely for him to see that sort of community happening amongst people who, again, he describes, were a variety of backgrounds. Moving on, his next quote is on his time in Mecca, and specifically his time in seeing the Kaaba, but also the mosque, the grand mosque that was being built at that time, since of course it wasn't done yet, around the Kaaba and its importance at that time. And he says, and I quote, My vocabulary cannot describe the new mosque in Mecca that was being built around the Kaaba, a huge black stone house in the middle of the Grand Mosque. It was being circulated by thousands upon thousands of praying pilgrims, both sexes and every size, shape, 
color, and race in the world. My feeling here in the house of God was numbness. My religious guide led me in the crowd praying, chanting pilgrims, moving seven times around the Kaaba. Some were bent and wizened with age. It was a sight that was stamped itself on the brain. End quote. Again, we see the same quote here, where again he notices that the pilgrims were a variety of backgrounds, again emphasizing just how important that was to his life and to who he was based on what he had grown up in. But I also want to point out about how awe he is at this time. He seems to be just in total awe. He is amazed at the fact that the Kaaba is here. And, you know, I can relate to that as well. I've seen the Kaaba once in my life when I went on Umrah. And it is something to look at. It is much bigger than I think many people look at, especially when you're standing right underneath it and then you look up at it. It really is something to look at. And in addition, his feeling of numbness is so important. You can almost hear him, you know, sort of describing his connection to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at that time. And you can sort of feel it through the words that he uses because they're very deliberate in terms of how he's describing what his experience is like. And in many ways, you can sort of feel just how strong Islam may have been for him because of just how important it seems to be for him at this very moment and also the fact that he probably has never seen anything like this in his life. And again, that goes back to the fact that he was so isolated in America because, of course, he only grew up in the American way. And this was a whole new world for him, which is why he was in such awe at what was happening. And finally, the third quote on America. And he says that this is, this is something at least that um, I think is really interesting, especially in context to what is happening in America in relation to Islam today. And so he says, and I quote, America, he wrote from Saudi Arabia on April 20th, 1964. America needs to understand Islam because this is the one religion that erases the race problem from its society. He would later concede that the white man is not inherently evil, but it's America's racist society influences which make him act evil. End quote. I think this is one of, one of his most important points and one of his most important quotes as well. Number one, we see his reformation from being a man who thought that white people were the devil as the nation of Islam teaches. He fully concedes the fact that that's not true. It's not true that white people are evil. It's not true that white people are the devil. What is true is that America has racist foundations that have to be targeted. That is what is the real evil. It's not the people, it's the institutions that need to be changed so that those people can live in better societies. And then the second point, and this is of course something that would probably be very controversial for many people today, but his point of saying that Islam is the one religion that erases the race problem within a society. That is, by many accounts, something that is so important for today. Because, of course, Islam is a religion that's heavily targeted in America. It's something that was a huge part of the war on terror, and it's still something that is a, a, a major issue, unfortunately. But it is a major issue in today's society as well, because it is something that has become very problematic, quote-unquote, for some people who demonize and, you know, weaponize hate against Muslims. And yet, Malcolm X is here. And his quote saying that would not even be true. The truth is Islam can help America. Islam is not a danger to America. Islam will make America better. And I'm sure there are people who would find this very revolutionary. But nonetheless, the fact that Malcolm, you know, seemingly turns his whole life into a, a whole, you know, 360, essentially, you know, and he makes a whole new man of himself because he accepts the religion 
of Islam. Eventually, of course, he does come back from the Hajj, and when he does, he gives himself a new name. He goes by the name Al-Hajj Malik Al-Shabazz. So he still does have the name Malcolm X, and he still does go by the name Malcolm X, but he takes the Muslim name of Al-Hajj Malik Al-Shabazz to represent his newfound religion and his new acceptance of Islam as his religion as well. And so looking at these quotes, we can of course learn a lot about Malcolm X, and we learn a lot about how he changed and his new grasp on life as well. And it is amazing to look at his growth, his change, and his ability to accept that his previous ideas were wrong, as well as to seemingly fully accept the ideas of Islam and embrace the virtues of community and unity that Islam preaches to the rest of the world and for you know Muslims in general as well. At this point, Malcolm X was a changing man. And he was one that was looking at the world from an entirely different view. It is incredible to think what his life would be from this point on. Because rather than a man who would be promoting ideas of racial segregation, he was now going to be promoting ideas of racial unity. He had also gone to his previous uh, members of the civil rights movement, people who he had scorned, people like Martin Luther King Jr. that he had, you know, uh, had talked down to and other members and somewhat, I guess, apologized and sort of accepted that their views and ideas were right, or at least that the ideas of racial harmony were important. And he seemed like he was a changed man, a more accepting man, a more open man, and a better man. Unfortunately, on February 21st, 1965, at the age of 40, he was assassinated while giving a speech at one of his organizations by individuals who are believed to have been affiliated, although this has never been proven, they were believed to be affiliated with the nation of Islam. Malcolm would die at the age of 40 and would be survived by his wife and six children. It is somewhat sad to think about what his life could have been had he not been assassinated. He spent his whole life believing in racial segregation and in the virtues of the nation of Islam, but he was never truly able to live his life as a Muslim and bring those values to light. He was never truly able to advocate for the civil rights movement through his ideas of Islam. It's somewhat sad as well that he would convert to Islam in 1964 and would only be assassinated a year later in 1965. It is somewhat sad to think that he never really got that chance to be that Muslim leader that he may have become. And at the end of the day, it sort of leaves all of us questioning, wondering, what Malcolm X's life could have been if he had continued and been allowed to preach his ideas of Islam being this beacon for racial harmony for many Americans. Now, before we end the episode, I also want to touch upon his relationship with Muhammad Ali because it is something that is important and I didn't want to talk about it earlier because I didn't want to disrupt the story of Malcolm X's life and I wanted to give it in sort of a chronological order and his relationship with Muhammad Ali sort of diverges from that and so rather than sort of having that problem in the storytelling, I would rather focus on this at the end and I think it's an important part for us to focus on because his relationship with Muhammad Ali was extremely important. The two would actually first meet back in 1962 when Muhammad Ali, who still went by the name Cassius Clay, which was his birth name, was a young 20-year-old boxer and Malcolm by this time was a prominent member of the Nation of Islam at the age of 37. In many ways, their relationship was like that of an older brother. 
and that Muhammad Ali was the younger brother and Malcolm X was the older brother who would give Muhammad Ali wisdom and advice to follow because at the time, Muhammad Ali himself was sort of looking for guidance and for help, similar to what Malcolm X was looking for when he first got out of jail. Now, Muhammad Ali had rejected his parents' Christian faith, similar again to Malcolm X, and he was looking for that spiritual guidance uh, that he eventually found in Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam. And Malcolm X being a great uh, orator and a great person when it came to speeches and sort of guidance, it was easy for Muhammad Ali to follow in his footsteps and join the Nation of Islam, which eventually became a major contribution to the nation's membership because Muhammad Ali was one of uh, you know, the most well-known boxers at that time, and his joining the Nation of Islam further brought legitimacy to what the Nation of Islam stood for and what the Nation of Islam represented. Unfortunately, however, this bond, although very strong, as Malcolm again had become a spiritual guidance from Muhammad Ali, would not last, as Malcolm's departure from the Nation of Islam in 1964 would create a division between Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X. And of course, this division was over Elijah Muhammad's numerous uh, affairs that he had uh, with many of his secretaries, in which many children were also born that he rejected and didn't recognize. And now, of course, Malcolm X, like I mentioned before, wanted to bring this news to public. He wanted uh, Elijah Muhammad to recognize and to admit to the rest of the nation of Islam that he did, in fact, do these things that he was being accused of. And so, because Elijah Muhammad did not own up to that, Elijah Muhammad did not want to believe that, um, or sorry, not that he didn't want to believe it, but he didn't want anyone else to believe it. He excommunicated Malcolm X. And in that process, he basically said that Malcolm X was a liar and that no one should follow him. And essentially all Nation of Islam members began to ignore and excommunicate Malcolm X as well. And so unfortunately in that process, the young Muhammad Ali did the same. He excommunicated Malcolm X, and the two's relationship fell apart. At one point, however, uh, both men were actually in Ghana in 1964, and they unexpectedly met outside of the Ambassador Hotel in the capital of Accra. Now, Muhammad Ali was there, I believe, for a boxing match, although I could be wrong, uh, while Malcolm X was there, uh, because I believe he was communicating with some of uh, the uh, the members of the African community there, as again, of course, because Malcolm X was part of many uh, African organizations that sought to help the African community uh, African communities in many parts of the world. And so I wanted to quote from their meeting because it was a very interesting quote, and I think something that unfortunately uh, represents just how. Uh, far apart the two were at this time, and what their uh, unfortunate relationship was during this period. And so it was recounted as the following, and I quote, Ali and Malcolm, their eyes met. And at that moment, Malcolm says, Brother Muhammad, Brother Muhammad, he wants to engage with him, say hello. He doesn't know at this time that Ali is mad at him or that they're no longer friends. He, being Malcolm X, has got this half-smile on his face, and Muhammad Ali, stone-faced, looks at him and says, Brother Malcolm, you shouldn't have crossed the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. And then he essentially walks away from him. End quote. So, essentially, because, again, Muhammad Ali is a member of the Nation of Islam at this time, he believes that what Malcolm X did was wrong because he bad-mouthed Elijah Muhammad for no reason. That's his belief at this time. Now, of course, a year later from this point in 1964, as I mentioned before, Malcolm X would get assassinated in 1965. The two never rekindled their friendship. And interestingly, and maybe a bit unfortunately in the sense that it is you know, unfortunate this couldn't happen during Malcolm X's life, 
but Muhammad Ali would actually follow in the footsteps of Malcolm X years later, and he too would leave the nation of Islam for Sunni Islam. Which is, of course, amazing, because it's an excellent thing, because again, the nation of Islam has nothing to do with Islam. But it's almost unfortunate, because it's a wonder to think what could have happened in the world if Muhammad Ali had converted during Malcolm X's time, or even if he had converted at the hands of Malcolm X. That would have been amazing, and, and a rekindling of their friendship. But again, unfortunately, the two never actually did rekindle their friendship. And in later years, Muhammad Ali would mention that one of his greatest regrets was never patching things up with Malcolm X, and that he never got a chance to truly tell Malcolm how important he was to him. He was one of Muhammad Ali's biggest supporters and coaches that helped make him into the person that we know today. And in many ways, this is another part of Malcolm's legacy. And it's also a wonder to think that if Malcolm X had lived longer, would Muhammad Ali have accepted Islam sooner than he did? Unfortunately, we'll never know. Uh, because, of course, Malcolm X's assassination is a, an unfortunate event that eventually brings many questions to us as to what his life could have been had he been given that opportunity to actually be a Muslim for the years on after he came back from Hajj. Now, I want to conclude the episode here in part because uh, it's probably gone on for, I think, as long as it can, but also because I think this is a good place to end the episode. Uh, I think that looking back on this episode, I really do think that it's amazing to look at Malcolm X's journey to Islam and especially his growth as a Muslim. And although I did sort of end on a sad point, I do want to bring maybe something that is a joyful thing or maybe something to look forward to or be happy about. And that's that if you really think about it, although Malcolm X was a Muslim for only one year, he actually accomplished everything that a Muslim relatively needs to accomplish. I mean, for one thing, he sought repentance for his previous misguidings, especially in following the nation of Islam and believing their ideologies. So he accepted and died as a Muslim. Secondly, he also uh, was able to fully incorporate Islam into his life, which is, of course, an important part of uh, you know, being a Muslim. Uh, thirdly, he was also able to go on Hajj. And if you think about it, it's almost amazing to think that he was able to do that. In one year, he went on Hajj and accomplished something that is, you know, the eternal goal for many Muslims, to go on Hajj. So Muslims would spend their whole lives, you know, waiting for the moment to when they're going to go on Hajj. And in one year, he accomplished this. And he was able to, you know, just tick off one of those, uh, you know, central components or the pillars of Islam as well. Now, I don't know if he actually uh, lived through Ramadan either. Uh, I don't know if he actually uh, fasted, uh, although since he was a Muslim for one year, it's quite possible that he did actually live through uh, one Ramadan. So I don't know for sure, but maybe it's possible that he did actually do Ramadan as well, which if he did do, would mean that in his short life as one year in a Muslim, he may have accomplished just about everything that had to do with the pillars of Islam. And, and I think that maybe that is something to be happy about. Yes, it's unfortunate, of course, that he was assassinated and that he died. But at the same time, he lived his life fully as a Muslim when he accepted Islam. And as we all know in Islam, your previous misguidings and everything are forgiven the moment that you convert to Islam. So the only thing that matters for him, the only thing that he will be judged on, is for those great deeds that he did after he converted. And I think that really is something amazing to think about him. And again, sort of adds to the reason why people love Malcolm X. Because he just was that kind of a guy. So then, again, to conclude, I hope you guys did enjoy today's episode on Malcolm X and a journey through his life and his, uh, his experiences, which, again, are remarkable to read about. 
Um, I hope you guys really did enjoy today's episode. I enjoyed looking into Malcolm X. He really is an interesting person. I would highly suggest that if you guys are interested to look further into his life, because again, there's a lot of things that I didn't talk about. So as always, I encourage you to go out, do your own research and learn about the world as well and to learn about Malcolm X as well. Now, if you guys did enjoy today's episode, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, do not forget to hit the like button, to subscribe to the podcast, and to leave a five-star review on whatever podcast host that you're listening to this from. I really appreciate if you guys could do that. It'll really help me in making future episodes, and it'll allow me to continue uh, the spreading of the podcast and for other people to learn about the podcast as well. As well as if you guys could go and follow me on Twitter and Instagram, I'll include my Twitter and Instagram handles in the description of this podcast episode, but you can find me on Instagram and Twitter. It's both, uh, both of the accounts are at MIB podcast. That's M I Y B P and podcast is capital and then just podcast. So that's M I Y B that's capital. And then the first P and podcast is uh, capital as well. So it's at MIB podcast. Find me on Instagram and Twitter. Follow me. I post every now and then. And I also post episode updates and podcast updates on my social media profiles as well. Now, with that being said, I hope you guys really did enjoy today's episode. Um, I hope to be able to make another episode before the year's end. uh, But I'll see how that goes, especially based on how busy I might be uh, and just how much free time I have. But until then... Inshallah and Alafis will meet again.